Hello and welcome to FTD Talk. My name is John James and I am a writer and campaigner for male victims of female perpetrated domestic violence. Many people come on the show from many different backgrounds, each with their unique story of domestic violence. Today we talk to David, autistic, suffering from PTSD, telling his story of his abusive relationship. It is a sad, horrific story, but with hope. I hope you find it interesting. Okay, David, welcome to FTG Talk. Good afternoon. Um, thank you very much for, for speaking, me to, speaking to me today. I know it's uh, very difficult for you and it's, uh, it's a brave step to take, not only to speak to me, but speak to me on camera. Yeah, thank you, man. You're right. It is hard. It's um, uh, it's not a very well discussed area. So uh, and and it's not easy for men to come out and talk about these things, especially given the backlash that you get uh, usually. So yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. Um, I'd like to begin with uh, telling me a little bit about you. Who is David? Okay, well, um, I was born on uh, Anglesey, or Innismon, as it's known locally. Um, my old man, my father was in the RAF, um, and not long after we, I was born there with one of my other brothers, we moved out to Germany, spent the next sort of 12 to 13 years on and off in Germany. Um, we had active service units of the IRA out there trying to bomb all our families, and uh, it, it could be quite challenging at times growing up in those environments, but... Uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, that led to me joining the forces. Uh, Two thousand and no, sorry, ninety nine, um, uh, where I ended up in Kosovo uh, twice. Did two tours out there, uh, one in Oman, one in Norway, attached to the Royal Marines. Uh, came home, struggled with my mental health a little bit. Managed to blag my way back into the army. Uh, ended up as household cavalry, uh, and that was pretty much me. I was a military man for the first thirty years. 32 years of my life uh, until I came out. So now I'm in university. Um, I, uh, I had obviously a, a quite a bad relationship at one point. Um, and the more I researched about what I was going through at the time, the more I was horrified by how many people were struggling um, and, the, and the severity of the situation as well. Um, so eventually I started obsessively researching, uh, as you can expect from somebody who's partially autistic. Uh, and I've not stopped since sort of 2014. Um, so I'm just completing my third year at uni. I've had to take a year off um, because I've been uh, sort of overworking myself. It's not been too good for my mental health. Um, but in the, in the meantime, I am writing my dissertation, which is a study of 728 male victims of domestic violence um, so it's going to be one of the largest studies of its kind here in the UK um, and that's, that's pretty much me that's all I do now so I've gone from one fight to another um, uh, and yeah that's what I do. And can we go go right back to the, the beginning of your relationship how did you meet your abuser? Uh, in work, actually, um, she stood out to me. Um, we, it was one of these jobs. It was a sales job, uh, one of these jobs where you could go in and get away with a bare minimum, uh, and most did. Um, I could. I've never been that far. I work and I work hard. Um, uh, I get the job done. 
Um, and so I just got on with it while everyone else sort of lazed about and did nothing. And she came in one day and she couldn't sit about either. She was a, a, as hardworking as I was and she was good at her job. So, yeah, we got chatting and things moved fast. What was it like in the beginning? Uh, it was amazing in the beginning. Um, just love through the roof. Um, but it wasn't long before the cracks started in the relationship. Um, the first one was uh, about three, it's been three months into the relationship. I went to the toilet um, and when I came back, I thought of going through my phone. Uh, so I very sort of calmly sat down and said, you know, what's going on? What do you, what are you worried about? Um, and she explained that she was, she said, both of my exes had cheated on me and I'm just worried. That's all. Um, anyway, I it immediately had this side of me thinking, oh God, the poor girl, you know, I've never seen her do anything like this before. Um, you know, she must've gone through hell with these other people and, and I resigned myself. Well, I'll be that guy that told, shows her that not all blokes are like this. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll love her the way they didn't and she'll never have to worry about this type of stuff again. Um, so yeah, um, she also told me the next day that one of her exes was incredibly violent um, but he was so incredibly violent that when him and her split up, his mum chose her over him, which is a, just a crazy, crazy way of basically saying, this is what I do when I split up uh, with my exes. I manipulate the world around me and I will take everything dear from you. Um, and that's certainly what happened over the next few years. And when did... When did it escalate? When did you eventually think? Because at the moment you're being very sympathetic with her. Mm. When did you think something's not quite right here? Um, I can't actually explain this, the, the situation. Um, we, I, I'm restricted by certain laws and things about what I can and can't discuss. discuss. Uh, so uh, talking from a, a third party perspective in terms of the research that I do, um, families have real problems when there's domestic violence, especially when the man is evicted. Um, so there can be all sorts going on in the background involving the families that will bring up all sorts of worries in the, the father. Um, but um, in my own case, what you do, you tend to do is you tend to find excuses. You, oh, no, they didn't mean that. And, um, you know, they, they were just, they're stressed. You know, you've just had children. Uh, you know, um, uh, this is the, the hard part. This is the beginning, you know, 300 nappies a day type issue. Um, uh, and yeah, you, you just keep finding excuses. Um, I mean, I, I'd, love, I'd love to be able to say the first time she really went for me physically uh, at about six months. Um, but that, I, I was aware something else was going on. And I think that's true for a lot of blokes. I think this argument that um, blokes don't realise they're in domestic violence relationships is a very valid one. I didn't do it for, for a long time and it took for other people to point it out to me. Uh, but I think in most of these relationships, and, and I'm definitely seeing this through my research, people are aware from very early on that something's not right. And it's just for some reason we we don't sort that out when the issue comes up. We let it go on and on. Such, especially given that female perpetrated violence can be 
it's such grey areas as well uh, when you're talking about coercive and controlling behaviours. Uh, you know, they will manipulate all sorts of different situations uh, and scenarios, uh, Kafka traps, all that type of thing. Um, uh, and, and so to be able to put your finger on it as well was a, uh, a big ask. Um, I think it's something that you learn when you go back years later and look back on it. You realize, ah, right, well, that was probably the biggest moment I had to, to go, do you know what? Now should have been, that should have been the time or now should be the time. You know, and did you um, tell anybody about your concerns? Um, yeah, um, I was screaming to the world for help. Um, all I could see was um, uh, my wife suffering, and I was scared for her, um, petrified for her, um, and I was desperate to to fix the situation. You know, I never imagined myself to be that guy who got married and then divorced. Um, I grew up in a, a very um, traditional family environment uh, in the armed forces. Um, everyone had their roles to play and uh, mums were as dedicated as our fathers were. Um, so we had big shoes to fill in terms of uh, how relationships are managed. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I put way too much pressure on myself to be the guy that was going to fix the issues that were there. And I think, you know, obviously that is true for a lot of people in Civvy Street as well. But I, I had this overwhelming sense of duty on my shoulders from a time in the forces. Like, no, I've got to sort this out. This, you know, I come from being one of the best soldiers in the world to, you know, this scenario. There, clearly, I can do this. I can fix this. But, yeah, the more you're trying to fix, the more the more out the window it goes. And, yeah. But you're still talking about her being broken. You're still yeah. talking about this something wrong rather than her being abusive. Is it is that how you felt? Yeah, yeah. Um I still do to this day. Um the I can't say that her behaviour uh, wasn't deliberate, wasn't extremely vicious, um, both physically and mentally. Um but having done all the research I have now into um what the dynamics are that in the lead up to these types of relationships i can't generally anymore say well that person is definitely an evil person and that person is definitely a perpetrator or because there's so much that um brings about these situations in from you know from people's childhood um i'm a prime example i had a fairly rough childhood despite growing up in the forces um, and that has affected my mental health in adult life, as you would expect from, you know, any member of the public. Um, and when you look into the classifications that these perpetrators and victims fit into in this area, you very quickly realise, well, these are all just broken people. And these are all people trying to communicate a certain way and just not getting it. Um, when you look at uh, the data that's come out of Australia, Canada, um norway we've got the nordic paradox now um the 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 behaviors that are that usually prompt these domestic violence um situations are very much rooted in uh, uh psychology in terms of painful psychology in terms of these people have, may have grown up bullied and don't know how to express themselves to the rest of the world uh, beyond that bullying scenario and um, uh and yeah, you've also got the other flip of the coin where you've got 
lots and lots and lots of people having probably traumatic brain injuries. We know that 95% of the adult criminal population um, has come from a broken home. 82% of the youth justice system, the children in there have come from a broken home. Um, and when you look at the types of behaviours that are uh, adopted by men and women in terms of the adaptation to those scenarios, you realise very quickly that there is an impulsive behavioural problem going on in terms of their choosing. They're, they're acting on jealousy, for instance. Um, you know, revenge seeking is one of the big indicators for a domestic violence event. Um, uh, that came out of Hume, Morgan and Boxall out of Australia a couple of years ago. Um, and when you consider the types of violence that are committed by female perpetrators versus male perpetrators, you see a lot more uh, revenge-seeking behaviour uh, for emotion, what may be perceived emotional harm coming from women. Um, you know, he, he did this or he didn't do this, and that means he doesn't love me, and rah, 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 rah here comes the finger. Um, I, think, I think you've been very, very generous, David, because you, you yourself have, have had uh, mental health issues. Um, I myself didn't have a, a, a great upbringing but that doesn't turn us into an abuser. No, of course, uh, you are choosing to at that point. And the, the problem for me is that I do see it as intergenerational trauma. So I don't, it's that saying in the Bible, we, we pay for the sins of our, our fathers. Um, and when you look at things like adverse childhood experience checklists and things like that, you realise we are just dealing with broken people all the way back through history. But that the fact that they're that it is intergenerational means that there must be an opportunity at some point for an intervention, for a successful intervention uh, to undo a lot of that. And I think if you focused in on that intergenerational trauma and we took a more holistic approach to what we do with domestic violence perpetrators now, I think you would see not just a, a reduction in domestic violence fig uh, figures, which is it would be the first substantial drop in domestic violence figures that we've had since the 1960s uh, you know generalized rates are coming down of all crime uh, but that's a reflection on the police it's not a reflection on domestic violence interventions working or anything uh, so yeah it, it's uh, yeah I appreciate most people will say yeah uh, you know you are being very generous but what else can we be when we look at the the patterns of behaviours that they have to go through first or they have to experience first before they get to that stage. It's just like, well, can we face the ugly truth now? Can we uh, can we realise we're just dealing with broken people and find a solution? Or do we have to keep going down the it's definitely men and it's definitely women route and, you know, all of that? Um, I just it, it, I feel like that would be the most scientific way to approach this situation rather than allowing the, the political side of things to to do all the, the legwork so well i think that's that's answered one of my questions of, of of why didn't you leave because you thought you could fix her and then and you haven't really put any blame on her you've just you've, you've mm. excused it with um uh with her being broken if you like yeah. um can can you just tell tell me what what kind of behaviours um, she displayed, whether it be the, the physical violence or the um, manipulation and controlling behaviour? Well, in terms of the uh, manipulative behaviour, she was through the roof. 
Um, so, like I say, I'm doing 728 male victims there, and there's probably only five cases uh, of all the research that's there that I would say are at the same level as my ex-wife. So um, she would play specifically on the fact that I have PTSD. Uh, it was undiagnosed. I was going through the diagnosis process at the time. Um, uh, and that's fairly usual for the veteran community. It's normally five years after we experience whatever that we start str uh, uh, struggling with it all. Anyway, um, she at that she took those opportunities where people would see me as being weak uh, and struggling with my mental health to manipulate in these just most crazy situations so that you couldn't then go out and say, look, this shit happened because people would just go, eh, you've got PTSD though, David. Um, and that went on for three years and, and to a degree it's still going on now uh, and it's one of the most debilitating things in the world because um, as soon as me and her separated um, the isolation began for me um, I stopped being able to sleep I, I have extreme insomnia um, I haven't been able to sleep since the 28th of October 2014 and that was the last time I was able to get any natural sleep um, my cortisol levels are so high because of what we all went through um, that my body is just constantly on oh my god what's coming next now um, because of how it played out in front of the judiciary in front of the police in front of the social workers in front of all of these authorities that were supposed to be there to help and identify when this stuff was going on and protect the children for the sake of uh, their long-term health and well-being and short-term safety, all of those things, none of those institutions were there, really. I was lucky in the fact that I had uh, a mental health key worker who fought very hard for me. She realised what was going on. Uh, it took the social workers two and a half years to realise what was going on. Uh, and at the end, they all came round to my house and apologised to me for allowing it to go on that long. The police conducted a MARAC. Um, and I got a letter out in the post saying um, we have found you to be at medium to high risk of being further abused. Uh, but there was no support services there and she was still able to, even though she was found to be the abuser. And, you know, it was quite obvious because I was turning up with the black eyes and cuts all over me and all sorts. Um, even though it was that obvious, she was still able to manipulate my mental health and still uh, abuse the situation. So um, she, in a lot of cases, she used things like key words, like words that she had planted further at the start of the relationship, like when she described her ex, who was so incredibly violent, that when they split up, her mum chose her over her ex. Uh, you know, that scenario I mentioned earlier. Um, she kept using throughout the relationship, just on a different occasion, she would use the words, she would always describe it exactly the same. He was so incredibly violent. And then despite the fact that I was the one with all the cuts and bruises and things like that, um, once we separated, she used that terminology to describe me to the new authorities that were involved, the authorities that didn't know that I was telling the truth. So at this point, I now have all sorts of different authorities saying, oh, no, no, no we've heard from her. We've not heard from you, you but, you know, when you go in front of those radically left-leaning feminist social workers who have spent the last 60 years denying that many male victims exist because, oh God, we can't have the, the hashtag patriarchy undone. Um, uh, 
yeah, it, it was incredibly abusive, incredibly abusive to the point where there was one scenario where um, I they made a load of accusations against me. I wouldn't stop denying it. They said I was so, uh, uh, so, what's the word? So stressed out. I, they used a whole plethora of words in it. I, I got it in a recording and I got it on a letter as well. They basically said, we think you're having a drugs-induced psychosis and we think you should go for a stay in the hospital. Now, for anyone who knows anything about mental health in, interventions, if you're uh, sent into a mental health institute for delusions, uh, you are there for a long time under a lot of heavy drugs and you will probably get out in six months to a year when you eventually admit your delusions. Uh, I refused to admit my so-called delusions. I um, fought them for two years. I was lucky that I had the support of the Shadow Minister for Social Justice and Equality here in Wales helping me at the time. We fought off sectioning and then it took me a further two years to clear my name. Uh, but my name was cleared at the end of that two years. Um, the problem was all of the incredibly strong antipsychotics that they pumped me full of in that time and the damage that it had done to my brain. Uh, so, yeah, she, the, the types of things she did uh, were through the roof, through the roof. She manipulated. It wasn't just a case of manipulating certain services, as you see with uh, what I would say is a traditional male victim of domestic violence case. And there was a whole plethora of other services around as well who were also being manipulated. And when we consider what the definition of torture is, the definition of torture, the United Nations definition of torture is to coerce somebody into making false confessions using the threat of loss of life or liberty. Well, I was certainly under a heck of a lot of pressure at that time to start saying, no, I was imagining it. I, you know, it's, it's all my PTSD. And if I hadn't, uh, or, or if it had gone against me, I could still be in hospital now with them demanding that I admit my delusions. But you, you had scars, David. I mean, how? But first of all, how did you get the the scars? Were were weapons involved? Or um, yeah, so um, uh, she took a set of keys to me one day. Um, it was a Ford Sierra key, um, and as I was uh, bending down to just cover myself from it. Um, she was going right into my back with it, uh, so she had it between her hands. Um, and it's, um, you know, it, it, a lot of people would jump in at that point and say, oh, it sounds like she was defending herself. Well, you, you know, consider this. I was in the summer house, the back door, and the front door was behind her. And she chose, instead of leaving the house, she chose to turn to me and she chose to go at me. Uh, and, you know, those were the unfortunate one or two of the unfortunate times where I couldn't get away from her, where I couldn't just disappear off out of the house. Um, in those moments, you, you're a bloke. You have to curl up on the ball, uh, in a ball on the floor, and you just have to take it. You just have to wait for it to end. Because if you respond, if you even restrain her, you're in trouble. The police yeah. will not see the difference. There, there is no grey area for them. And even with those those scars, they still thought it was you? Uh, no, um, the authorities at that point were starting to realise. Um, uh, there was another incident where she'd thrown stuff at me during meetings. Um, there was, in front of all of these people, there were other instances where she manipulated 
me and my mental health for about three weeks. And I kept saying to these, all of these different people, I'm sure she's doing this deliberately. It's breaking me psychologically. I'm sure she's doing it deliberately. And they kept saying, oh, no, well, you, sometimes you get paranoid when you're um, stressed out, David. So, no, uh, it, it, I'm sure it's not that. Eventually, after three and a half weeks, they realised, oh, no, she is literally terrorising him here. Uh, they, they got involved at that point and the, the social workers were very good. Um, but they had to be kind of uh, encouraged to recognise me as a male victim rather than actually realising it themselves. If, if he was doing to her what she's been doing to him, we would all be up in arms about it. And then I burst into tears in this meeting and I just said, like, I can't cope with this. This has been like this for years now, five years. I don't understand why she's doing it. And this health visitor, this horrible lady with no training in domestic violence whatsoever, she's had the bare minimum. And it's all come from the same radically left-leaning perspective. Um, uh, she said, yes, but David, she was angry with you. Uh, and at that point, my mental health key worker just lost her shit shouted at us as loud as she could what in the hell do you think you're saying is it okay for david to do to her the same thing if he gets angry and it was only when that one individual was stood around me protecting me um that i was able to at least get some sense of you know this can stop this particular episode here this can stop now do you know what i mean uh and what did she ever I mean, we, we've discussed that uh, she used your mental health uh, against you. Mm. Um, did she did she ever throw that in your face, the PTSD or the autism? Um, yeah, but, um, she would constantly say things like, um, no one's ever going to believe you. Um, uh, you're the one with PTSD, not me. Um, uh, so yeah, and, and it was so obvious as well, and, and that's why, I, sorry, I, I went off track, didn't I? That's why I, I isolated myself. So um, veterans with uh, PTSD, complex PTSD, tend to isolate for between 18 and 24 months. They do that 2.4 times. Now, people with complex PTSD um, do that generally anyway. It's just veterans are a little bit more marked on it. And when I came back from those scenarios where you know I was being pumped full of drugs and she was saying all these things that weren't true the, the one thing that stood out for me massively was nobody is listening nobody here is listening not one person uh, I was lucky that I had my mental health key worker um, but yeah there was nothing I could say or do so I actually realized that the safest place for me to be was completely isolated because if anyone can walk into my life and say anything they like about me and it becomes my reality, whether I like it or not, then I'm safer on my own. Then I, I can't have people around me. I can't have anyone around me. And that's when the obsessive research started in terms of what was going on. And uh, the more and more I learned about it, you know, you, you only have to look at mental health advocacy services. Uh, the fact, fact that these services exist tell you how bad mental health patients have got it. We haven't got our own voice. Nobody is listening to us. In the vast majority of environments we walk into, where there is any official status whatsoever, we have everyone else making best interest decisions for us. Um, and, you know, if you're a female abuser, 
and you can see that happening to your partner, it makes it really easy for them just switch up the volume on the abuse because you know you can do whatever the hell you like and you'll get away with it. Nobody's listening to him. And this is obviously what we see in domestic violence services in general, isn't it? Uh, male folks. And obviously, um, by, by talking to you, I can see that it still really affects you now. Yeah. Um, how, how long ago did the relationship end? Uh, 2000 and back end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And, and yeah, still it's still, yeah, it, it haunts me, man, haunts me. Um, so I have from probably, uh, maybe four or five nightmares a week. Um, uh, some of them are completely trivial. Um, and it's only after having, it, it all started like I say, 28th of October 2014. That's when the insomnia started, and that's when the. I now take 200 to 300 milligram of trazodone every night just to get me to sleep. It's an incredibly strong um, antidepressant, and it, one of the side effects was that it uh, it sorts out insomnia. But yeah, the, the nightmares. Some are really trivial. After all these years, some are really trivial, stupid stuff. But then some are very, very personal. Very personal. Um, and you wake up and your heart is just pounding out of your chest, sweat all over you. Until recently, I had an ex-military working dog here, um, a girl called Lady. Um, she was a high assurance search dog, IED detective. Uh, and there was one day I woke up and I just crawled to the end of the bed and I was crying. She climbed onto the mattress and she just sat down, put her arm over me and pulled me in for a cuddle. She could see how bad it, it, it was, but this is the problem. Uh, I mean, it's hard enough uh, to be a victim of domestic violence in this day and age because there are no services, appropriate services. I mean, you, you can find the Adam Project in uh, Leicester, Leicestershire area. You can find Mankind Initiative, Initiative, but they're only open a few hours a week. They haven't got the funding for the, uh, to take on the caseload that's required in society. I and mean, last year, there was over 700,000 male victims of domestic violence, and you've got two or three charities who are only open for a couple of hours a week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, in terms of talking about the situation for it in a therapeutic environment, I can't do that. They won't let me. Um, so this is literally the first time I've been able to speak about it since me and Why, why is that, David? Why, why won't you let you? Um, they say it's, they've given us a lot of different reasons. Uh, the most appropriate one, though, appears that it's an ongoing trauma. So they can't fix that it's just going to keep going and keep going and keep going um they recognize that i'm still in a domestically abusive situation um it doesn't make sense in the fact that i mean I, and i said this to them when i first came back from the whole scenario uh, i said look i i need help here and i need answers and they said no david it's there's no point you might as well just accept what's happened and move on and that's a really unusual thing for a mental health team to say. They're not allowed to say it. Right? And it took for a psychiatrist to come in and get involved and say, no, listen, this is how mental health works. If David has questions or indeed any patient has questions that they need answers to, it's your job to help him find them. Uh, uh, but that did almost nothing uh, for the help. So I've had zero therapy in six years the only therapy that i've had has come from a university um Bangor university who is they have a they're a wellness center uh, for mindfulness and buddhism and all that um 
so yeah it's incredibly good therapy there and a few other armed forces charities have stepped in as well but but because the vast majority of my trauma is related to that relationship there is nothing i can do to process it it sucks that i can whereas a, a female victim you know has got women's aid to go and sit in front of all the counselors there um you know there, there's nothing for us so it is unprocessed trauma for the vast majority of us um how, how do you see see the future then david um even a few weeks ago i, I was very unwell uh, so uh, about three months ago i tried to kill myself um uh it's hard it's really hard but you don't feel like you're it's ever going to end you're stuck in a situation somebody can reach into your world anytime day in day out they can stab you with a knife and it feels like nobody would stop um so for me it's about the only thing i can do is try to fight this situation as much as possible set an example and because of the autistic side of me because i did so much research uh, over these last few years i can I, I know that i can bring a, a a scientific voice to the table that makes the experience for male victims different further down the road uh, and so you know that's all i've got so that's what i do um, I campaign on a daily basis for fathers' rights, men's rights, children's rights. Um, I, as part of my uni degree, I set up a, a service called the Veteran and Blue Light Service uh, or charity called Families Need Fathers, both parents, Matt Cymru. Uh, and they essentially help veterans and police members and paramedics going through the family court process just to, to have a bit of emotional support and to have uh, the uh, the the legal support they need as well. We offer free uh, legal counsel sessions uh, where basically everyone gets online and you talk to one of our solicitors and they can help you through the process. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I've got. So if I, there's, my hands are tied in one respect, so in the other respect, if all I can do is fight to change this world for the better, then that's what I'll do. That's how I cope in the fight. Well, I mean, I, I think that's very commendable that you you're putting up all your energies into that. I'd hate to hate to um, to think that you carried through on on a, a suicide attempt, David. It's not worth it. Nobody's yeah, worth, I, nobody's, nobody's worth that. I know, I know, and the uh, you have to consider the after effects as well, don't you? It, it's a very very hard world to live in. That um, I've lost through all this campaigning. Um, I've lost from. The campaigning movement and my extended circle, I know of eight people who have died in similar circumstances. Um, and, you know, a lot of the data that I'm going through at the moment, analysing, there is a hell of a lot of talk about suicide, suicidal ideation in there as well. And it's completely, whilst you're absolutely right, there is a much better way of doing things. You can see so many out there going through exactly the same thing and expressing it exactly the same way as well. Uh, and it is this loneliness out there that, you know, there is no one they can really go to. And that's why conversations like these are so important. So that if, if that one person who was wondering, here's any of this shit, this is, you know, this is what I'm going through, man. I need to find my way way to extricate myself or, or to change something or you know or, or this is one of my friends going through this then you know fucking anything that can be done so 
I mean, the, the, through this show, and uh, I'm, I'm on my third series now, mm. and so many men have, have come forward to, to speak to me. And, uh, and this is what it's all about. It's all about giving everybody a voice. But mm. I think more needs to be done. I think more people need to come forward and, and speak about it. Yeah. And I think um, more work needs to be done, such as yourself. Yeah. This is it. The, the sucky thing about the situation is the, the research is already there. Um, it, it is um, uh, getting quite good now in terms of there are more and more people coming into this field who recognise nothing will get done unless we roll our sleeves up and sort this out ourselves. People like yourself. Um, the, the research itself, like I say, has been there for such a long time that the resources should have been applied a long time ago as well. Uh, but, you, you know, they absolutely haven't. Um, we're even looking at COVID now uh, in, in terms of the, the so-called pandemic within or the endemic within a pandemic, whatever Women's Aid called it. Um, we, what we now know is that domestic violence rates absolutely did not increase. Um, they did for male victims substantially by about 60 percent. Uh, but as for female victims, there was no substantial increase. They remained relatively the same as they have always done. And yet we saw, we've seen 60 million pound, 60 or 70 million pound, whatever it was, going to these female-led charities, uh, these women's aid-led charities, feminist charities that don't believe in male victims. And even with this massive increase in male victims, nothing has gone out to the men, men's charities. Absolutely nothing. And it's a shambles. It's it's more than just um, uh, a, a, an oversight. There is a definite, definite attempt to ignore this issue by the UK government. And uh, yeah, they need to get their act into gear. They really, really do. What would you, be your advice to uh, male survivors of abuse going through the same things as you're going through? Oh, Jesus. Um, I, I think about this a lot. Um, so my uh, a huge area of concern for me is, is fathers who are also victims of domestic violence. Um, and I never quite know how to answer that question, because if the correct advice should be get yourself out of that relationship and do it fast. Um, don't stick around because the more violence they see coming your way, you know, the, the more uh, problems the children are going to have when they grow up. Um, you know, so it's absolutely the right thing to do to get out as fast as possible. The other side to it, though, is that we have to take into account reality. She will make excuses, uh, uh, accusations against you. You will go into family courts where the two social workers at the back of the room are radically left leaning Black Lives Matter supporting feminists who hate white cis men. Uh, most of their essays said that while they were in university. I can assure the most people of that i've done the research in that area i've also done social work modules i know what they learn um but yeah once you get into court you're going to be in court in that scenario and there is nothing you can do and even if the judge sees what's happening there will be nothing he can do and you will end up on the pile of statistics like most of these other kids so we say that a quarter of all children are growing up in a single parent household here in the UK. It's more than that. It's definitely more than that. But uh, anyway, the children and those families have been through the family court in the vast majority of cases. Those children have no opportunity once you start going to family court, unless you are the lucky one in a million, 
which you won't be nine times out of ten, you will lose access to your kids because of those political dynamics at play in court. And your abuser will be there to stick the knife in with words that mean nothing to everyone else, but there are, are really, really quite impactful to yourself. And it's like they're swinging across the courtroom and punching you in the face and doing it in front of the judge and everyone else. And there is nothing you can do about it. If you try, if you are lucky enough to get a contact order put in place, if you repeatedly uh, ignores it, there will, with a high degree of likeliness, nothing will be done. They say that they can't fine her uh, because that will be detrimental to the children and they can't um, send her to jail or anything like that because that will be detrimental to the children. Therefore, yes, you're supposed to have contact with your kids, but there's nothing we can do. And, and th those are the people that I'm worried about the most because of male victims in general, the most at risk are those fathers who have been through hell, have made the right decision by their children, and then have not been protected by the courts, have not been protected by the judicial system. And the outcomes for those, those children as well are, are horrendous. But obviously, because they have to go through, the female perpetrators tend to be female perpetrators for several relationships. So those children will go through, you know, that type of domestic violence experience over and over again. So it, it's a case of what are you supposed to say to somebody going through that? Do you stay, take the beatings, accept that one nation might kill you? Or do you, so that you can protect the children, so that you can still see your kids? Or do you go? Do you try to do the right thing, even though you know she's probably not, and, the, and your children are still going to suffer down the line? If you're single, get out, get out fast. You Just get out, go. But if you're in a family situation, things are, are much more complex. And I'm so sorry that you're in that position. There are people out there like me that are trying to help and we're setting up these services. But if you know if anyone is listening to this and hearing what they're they but find families need fathers, find mankind, find all of these little charities, little and big, and there will be people there that can help you through it. One way or the other. That's not a a rosy picture, David. <laughs> no, it, it, it's not. Unfortunately, it's the absolute truth of the situation, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we are lucky in the respect that, uh, you know, there are so many more people like myself, like yourself, coming out of the woodwork now, doing as much as we can to get this picture into the limelight. Because the sooner we do, the sooner we can break the intergenerational trauma for the next generation. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know, if these kids who are exposed to these dynamics are going to be at a heightened risk of being in their own domestic violence relationships, and there's a shed load of evidence for that. And it doesn't work the way you think it does either in terms of, well, that must turn young boys into domestic violence perpetrators. You are more, I would argue, more likely, but at least as likely to end up a domestic violence victim if you've been exposed to it as a child as well. So, uh, that's where it needs to begin, though. Do you think it's more education when people are young? On yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The problem we have on that side of things is the feminist push to go into education and make those changes. Um, so in the last month, no, month and a half, we had the education minister, the conservative education minister, basically stating that as part of the high school education curriculum, 
boys and girls will now be taught uh, healthy relationships from the perspective of misogyny. Oh, and we're loading the schools with social workers as well, radically left-leaning feminists with 93% accuracy. You know, what's going to come out of that? The only thing that's going to come out of that is that women are going to come out of school and university the way they have been, but much more visceral about this situation. It's definitely white men. White men, are, white heterosexual men are definitely the problem. That's what will come from that. It's it, it's sickening. We need that everyone needs the right education um, rather than a politicised education, which is what everyone's been getting for the last 60 years. You know, if we ever want to get this right, that's exactly where we've got to go. David, that was a lot more fascinating than even I thought it was going to be. Cool. And I, I thank you very much indeed for, no. for talking to me. There's a lot for everybody to take away from that and to, to mull over. Yeah, I, I feel like I've probably got it all mixed up in my head. So uh, my apologies if I came across like I was rambling at stages, but. No, there's a there's a lot of it. You got a lot of information out there, and it's a it's a a lot for people to think about. Yeah. So I'll thank you very much for that. No problem at all. Will you send us a link and everything uh, when it's sorted that out for you, my friend? All right. Okay. Lovely. Okay. Well, pleasure talking to you, man. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the show. No Cheers. problem. All the best. Take care. Take care. Bye. -bye.